0: Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to M Pavilion. This is the very last um, M Talk that we're presenting. Um, M Pavilion closes on Sunday, officially. Um, And what a great way to end. Um, On behalf of the Naomi Milgram Foundation, I'd like to welcome you to M Pavilion, um, and also on behalf of all the speakers uh, today we acknowledge the original owners of the land on which we meet, the Bunurong people, and pay our respects to their elders, past and present. Um, on Saturday, Paul Fox, who's also speaking today, launched a book on the history of this site called *Miracle Swamp*, um, written by Gina Levenspiel. It, it's a wonderful piece of research um, that Doc, uh, and it's a, doc, it's been commissioned by us and supported by the Gordon Darling Foundation, and. What the book does is to try and understand the creation of this park in 1905, but what it also does is trace the history of Melbourne and the the people who made it so distinctive. Um, For that, we're extremely grateful to Gina. We're also very grateful that she suggested um, this panel discussion on urban planning and Melbourne's future, um, and also for inviting the Honourable Mr. Jeff Kennett AC to be the keynote speaker. Uh, Gina trained first at the University of Sydney in the Department of Architecture. She is she's passionate about what we can learn from history and the people who contribute to our built environment. She's also asked me to dedicate this event to the memory of four leaders of the community, of that community, who have died in recent months. They are the architect, Ken Woolley, the architectural historian, Jennifer Taylor, the educator, Trevor Howes, and most recently, Paul Folaros, um, who dedicated his work, uh, working life to the improvement of Indigenous health and in the environments. Um, an appreciation of the role that individuals play in our national culture brings us appropriately to our keynote speaker, the former Premier of Victoria for nine decisive years from 1992 to 1999, Mr Jeff Kennett. I first met Mr Kennett in 1996, midway through his term. Um, I'd been appointed uh, creative director of the first Melbourne Fashion Festival, one of the many festivals and events initiated by the Kennett government. For those of you too young to remember, Mr. K- Mr. Kennett came to power at an extremely difficult time um, in Victoria's history. The economy uh, and, a ki- and community confidence was at an all-time low. Melbourne, as we know it, was unrecognisable then. And Jeff Kennett seem- seemingly single-handedly set about to change that. He was a phenomenon, a political leader, marketing machine and chief motivator all rolled into one. One of our first meetings took place at Parliament House with the Festival Chair, Craig Kimberley. Mr Kennett, of course, as usual, was full of ideas and ambitions, not only for the fashion industry but also for Melbourne and its place in the world. How to get press, of course, how to select models and how to put on fashion shows. He ended the meeting, I remember by walking us to, from his office to the top of Parliament House steps. And as, as Lord of all he surveyed, he proclaimed, Isn't Mar- Melbourne marvellous? Which sort of sounds odd, because Melbourne's not very good at blowing its own trumpet, and as people, melburnians don't really um, crow a lot about the city. But during his time as Premier... Um, Mr. Kennett set about to regain that century-old um, title for Melbourne as being marvellous. Today, I look forward to hearing what Jeff thinks are his legacy and also what he dreams for Melbourne in the future. After the keynote, Gina will introduce her panel members to continue the conversation. Thank you very much, Mr. Kennett. Completely forgotten the running order, and Gina's actually going to say something now. <laughs> Thank you.
1: <laughs> thanks, thanks, um, Robert, uh, and thanks for the dedication of, of today. Um, I wanted to welcome you all to today's discussion on the 21st century urban frontier of Melbourne, um, and it's a great gathering. And one might well ask the question: Why it has taken so long? to come about. Um, so I'd like to congratulate and thank Naomi Milgram and also Robert for enabling the discussion. Thank you. To more formally introduce our speakers, um, the former Premier of Victoria, Jeff Kennett. As Robert mentioned in his introduction, uh, Mr. Kennett was the Victorian Premier from 1992 to 1996. In the first of two terms, in 1995, Mr. Kennett's administration introduced the good design guidelines for medium density development. Some argue that the goal of that policy was to stymie the outward pressure of the metropolis at the edge and turn the urban frontier inwards, um, in a sense turning it back on itself in order to make the city more compact. Naturally enough, this placed new demands on the historic core of the city. And it was around this time that I arrived in Melbourne from Alice Springs, and the rapid transformation of the city was vivid. I saw the deindustrialisation of South Bank and of the Jollymont rail yards, um, and these large areas were redesigned to facilitate the lateral development of the city along the river. But because the vision was, in principle, a cultural intervention, the redevelopment also involved the renaissance of Melbourne's 19th century cultural infrastructure, um, the reassertion of Latrobe's parklands, and also a brand new layer of late 20th century cultural infrastructure in Melbourne. And these are buildings like the Melbourne Museum, Federation Square, uh, Melbourne Convention Centre, and also the second campus of the gallery on Federation Square. But what I hadn't realised at the time was that the idea to connect the city with the Yarra River was a promise that had been made by many governments for many decades. So there are many specific nuances of Mr Kennett's urban reforms, which made his vision of the city a reality. And we hope to touch on this legacy um, today. The second uh, panellist is Michael Markham. Michael is a Melbourne architect and he's worked his small practice for over 20 years. He is two times winner of the Harold Desbrough and Near Award, which is the profession's highest recognition for residential architecture. Uh, Michael is a Fulbright Scholar and he holds a Master of Architecture from the University of Illinois in Chicago. He was also awarded the Schiff Prize in 1989 from the Art Institute of Chicago. Peter Brew... Um, Standing next to Mr Mr. Peter Brewer is a Melbourne architect and Peter's lectured in architecture at the Department of Architecture at RMIT since 1992 Um, and recently he returned to undertake his doctorate in architecture and currently lectures in urban design. Um, Peter's doctorate looks at the use of ideas by architects and is an inquiry into architecture's method. Dr. Paul Fox, standing here on the side of Michael. Um, Paul is an author, a landscape historian, a scholar of gardens, and also a senior knowledge holder of the ideas that gardens transmit. He has been a research fellow at the State Library of Victoria, at Museum Victoria, and at Deakin University. Um, In 2007, Paul was the recipient of the University of Melbourne's uh, Wettenhall Prize for the Best Postgraduate Thesis in Australian History and that work is titled Australian Colonial Gardeners and the Landscapes of Empire, 1833 to 1912. So we'd like to begin with you, Mr Kennett and I must say that we're all thrilled that you've accepted this invitation uh, to talk on Melbourne today. Uh, tell us your special vantage point from Spring Street in the 1990s and and also your insights um, as you look back into that crystal ball, and, and talk about Melbourne's future 20 years. Can you 20 years later? Can you please j- join me in welcoming Mr. Kennett? Thank you.
2: Thank you, Gina. Uh, can I first of all admit that I'm the least qualified of the panelists uh, to whom you'll be directing questions today? Can I also just pay my respects to the First Peoples, the Kulin people who occupied this land and to their leaders past and present. And can I say what a pleasure it is to be here uh, this afternoon in these settings. I've been asked to address uh, a number of issues, and I'm going to do them fairly quickly, if I may, so that I can look to the future, because we can't change the past, and then throw it open to the panel discussion to see where we may end up. Uh, and I've been around now for a few decades. I intend to be here for a lot longer. Uh, but when people ask me how old I am, I respond by saying I was born in the first half of the last century, which is correct, which gives you some idea that I've been around for a while. And what impressed me as a young person in the early days was firstly my appreciation of the ease of which it was that we moved around the city of Melbourne. Not as many people, not as many cars, and the hoddle grid is without a doubt one of the great designs uh, for infrastructure we've ever seen. The second thing that remains with me today as a defining issue is the quality of our gardens. Right around the city, wherever they are, they are an asset that is very, very hard to repeat or to replicate. And even here in the Queen Victoria Gardens, that wonderful statue up there, regardless of whether you're a monarchist or a republican makes no difference is a wonderful piece of architecture in a beautiful setting. And it is in fact this triangle, one of my favourite places in Melbourne. So much so, for those of you who may be monarchists, I've suggested to the Lord Mayor that we ought to replicate this type of site and call it the Queen Elizabeth Gardens with a statue or some appropriate recognition of the reign of Queen Elizabeth, because I don't think we're going to see anything like it in the future. And this is a very, very special spot. So Hoddle Grid, gardens. Then it was the architecture that I loved so much, which is now so different. So many of the buildings, young in age compared to Europe, but old here in Australia, have disappeared. And I regret that. But of course, you can't stand in the way of progress, but I'll come back to that in a few moments. And the fourth quality or ingredient that I think made Melbourne and Surround so special was the culture of the people. And I go back to 1956, was when we staged the Olympic Games here, and they were termed or coined the friendly games. And we do have a reputation as a community to be outward looking, to be courteous, and to therefore be generous. And often it is the attitude of the citizens that so greatly affects and influences the vibes of the city. So what do I see as I look around the city today on those four points? The Hoddle grid is still there, of course. Of course, it is becoming more crowded because of the build-up of traffic that's occurring and the challenge of dealing with the management of traffic, not just in the provision of infrastructure, But the management of traffic is going to be one of the great challenges of those in positions of authorities in years to come, because I suspect we're never going to be able to afford the infrastructure that's necessary to catch up, let alone keep ahead. So we're becoming, in one sense, a more cluttered city. The gardens are still a wonderful asset. And when one of my predecessors started the development of the tennis centre, I, at Flinders Park, I argued against that because I didn't like to see parklands, gardens being turned into buildings. It's not fair to say they were gardens. They weren't. They're open space. They're sports fields. But in retrospect, I've got to say he was right, because they were just open space that weren't properly utilised, and that centre now has developed into a world-class asset that adds to Melbourne's reputation as a sporting capital, and artistic city. But we've got to make sure that we don't in any way allow our gardens to be decimated or to be reduced in size. And by that, I also mean that we make sure that our gardens are maintained. When things get tight economically, as I suggest they probably will in the next five to six years, often people, governments, start to cut back in areas where there are no votes associated with them, obviously. But if you don't maintain what you have, particularly in the area of government-owned buildings and gardens, they can very quickly fall into disrepair. In terms of the architecture of the city, there are buildings I like and there are buildings I detest. And I well remember when uh, Federation Square was being built and I looked over at St Paul's Cathedral on the opposite corner. And for those of you who have never noticed it, when you next go in that area, have a look at the way when they built the ramps to enable the disabled to use their wheelchairs or walk up slight inclines to get into the front of the church, have a look at the way they capped that walkway. It's in a granite stone, which is totally out of step with the construction of the building or the other material used. And it stands out like a sore thumb. There are many instances where today's, with due respect, not necessarily architects, but builders or people who have been asked to rectify a situation, have come in and used material that I find totally abhorrent to the original architecture and design of a building. I've got to also say in terms of architecture, I hate the high-rise buildings that are built to maximise return and are fundamentally simply squares that reach up into the sky and many of them today containing single-bedroom apartments that are so small... I have no doubt in the future we're going to see not only a glut, but a lot of these buildings are going to be very difficult to occupy. And I'm not sure that the construction of many of them will stand the test of time, like many of our other buildings. Architecture, there's just one other thing I'll mention briefly in passing. I know we're getting a larger population. But at breaks my heart when I drive around the main roads that lead into the city and I say, see the planning laws of change that allow beautifully old, Edwardian, Victorian homes with stained-glass windows and gargoyles being pulled down and converted into flats or units. I don't mind stuff without the history, but these houses today, the materials are not even being collected. They're actually just being knocked over and dumped to allow new buildings to be made. And in many cases, the scale of the buildings is totally out of proportion to the block of land. So in one particular area on a block that wouldn't be more than about 800 metres, there's 11 apartments going up. The other factor with that is, of course, we talk and worry about the traffic, as i mentioned before, but as we pull down these Edwardian homes, Victorian homes of standing, which may have had a family live in it, and two or three cars at the most, we're now in some cases seeing that site occupying 20 cars or 50 cars, and yet they're using the same infrastructure to enter the city, which is only going to clutter up what we have in front of us. For those of you who understand, and it's been so long now since I've been in office that I've almost forgotten, but very rarely do you get governments able to add to the critical mass of their outdoor space and their gardens. But we were able, when we developed Federation Square, to put into place uh, Mirawang Bar, which is a large garden right in the centre of the city, which is a great asset. So today we build on a lot of the assets of the past, but I question whether in real terms we're adding real value to the quality of the community in which we live. When we're in office, and I'm only going to touch on this briefly, To me, gardens were always terribly important. Hence, Ma, We had a plan, a design, if we were able then to be re-elected in 99, which we weren't, to put a roof over the railway line beyond Federation Square. And one of my concepts there, there were two. One was to turn it into a garden so that we would take greenery right down the Yarra into the city and open up the vistas of the city uh, to the community as a whole. The other was, and some of you might not appreciate the expense associated with it, I would have actually built a new parliament house there surrounded by gardens. Because the parliament house we have is old, it's very costly to maintain, and I'm afraid to say it's no longer uh, conducive to good decision-making, good thinking, and if it had been a business, it would have been wiped out years ago. But can you imagine a low-rise parliament house on a roof line there, surrounded by gardens, overlooking the Yarra, so it wouldn't have been tall enough to have a, a shadow? It could have been a, an architectural masterpiece. So it is important to think that governments hold what they take on coming to government in trust, And then hopefully as they leave government, they've got to be prepared to add to the value. The other important aspect of our time in office was our, I think, support for the arts, for culture and sport. And I combine them all together. So a Buddy Franklin in full flight to me is artistic, as well as some of you would see it as being a sporting act. So sport, arts, culture is one of Melbourne, one of Victoria's greatest strengths. And we should always invest in it governments must be patron of the arts, they must be patron of culture, they must be patron of gardens. And then lastly, of course, there was this issue of connecting infrastructure. And it's one of the great challenges of our time as to how we're going to, A, catch up, how we're going to provide creatively in the future for those pieces of infrastructure that we need. A lot of that is increasingly driven by cost and avoided because of cost, simply because governments are now doing much more than they're ever intended to do. So governments are now, in one sense, social welfare agencies, which is why we've got some of the economic challenges that we have today as a country, and therefore some of the issues for which they they primarily exist get ignored, and they get ignored at our peril, because then ultimately... We get to a situation where either the repair or the congestion or the lack of access to good services overwhelms compute, uh, the community. If we look to the future, how do I see this state in 50 to 100 years' time? I don't know if we'll ever have the infrastructure that I think is necessary for this community. If I had the option and the opportunity i would probably borrow one or 200 billion dollars put it off budget pay the interest on that and build an underground rail system we will never ever be able to meet our on earth transport requirements the way we're heading particularly with the projections in terms of population growth and we could better utilize and better service with a major rejig of our public transport system. Of course, keep our trams, but if you have a look around the world, and I go, as some of you do, to Russia or England, and you look at these underground systems that have been in place 50, 100 years, and they're wonderfully reliable, they're wonderfully clean, and here we have still blockages, we have delays, etc., etc. So the great challenge, in one sense, is the challenge of infrastructure and how we're going to fund it. And that's going to require a... Considerable change of the way in which we do our accounts. I've, I can't believe that we won't still be a green city in the years to come. I well remember one of my predecessors, uh, Rupert Hamer, who had as the slogan for this state Victoria, the garden state. It was terribly apt because I used to come and walk around here and elsewhere through our gardens, and our visitors to this part of the world were absolutely astounded that there were seats that were unoccupied and the places they'd come from, invariably, the seats were all occupied. They had bigger populations. They didn't have the opportunity to rest them soul and body on seats that we have. So we do have to have a master plan for our gardens and a priority attached to them as to how we're going to maintain them. That is not to say there isn't going to be change because a lot of what we see around us, a lot of the trees that have been planted over the years are ageing. They're going to have to be replaced. But the intrinsic value of what we have here is so important. For me, gardening is the psychological, the emotional relief you get from the stresses and the anxieties of day. Even in my busiest times, to spend half an hour in the garden I could feel the stress disappearing. I had my clearest thoughts. I love nothing more than the opportunity to walk around and see the changes within our gardens. Now, state and governments must play a role in all of this because unfortunately, if they don't, then, of course, decay sets in very quickly indeed. I noticed Gina in a book and it's a wonderful documentation of this part of the city and I hope when it's... I think Robert said it's going to be released later this weekend, is it? Uh, You get a copy of it because it's well-written, well-researched, but more importantly, easy to read. But I do, Gina actually suggested that we should put Alexander Parade underground and take the parkland right to the river. It's a wonderful vision and I'd like to think that it could happen, but I think you'd find any government in office, regardless of their politics, will have higher priorities than that in the short term until we once again somehow find a golden age as we had in the 1850s, 60s, 70s and 80s. People often ask me, in terms of my political life, who do you admire, did you in any way base your own performance on anyone else's? And I say no to the latter. But the one person I'm eternally grateful for, in terms of the development of this city, was a visionary who came from Ireland, being Sir Edmund Barry, a lawyer, went to Sydney first briefly, which makes a lot of sense, and then he settled here in Victoria. And he was the man at the time who, as a very senior judge, and influential person, was the one who was motivated to build the library, the museum, the first Royal Melbourne Hospital, the university, etc., for numbers much greater than existed at the time. He thought decades ahead in providing. And it is that foresight... It is that lack of long-term vision that I think is lacking today. And I don't mean that in a political sense. And it doesn't just involve government. It involves the community and leaders of the community coming together and saying, all right, well, how do we see Victoria? How do we see Melbourne in 2100? And what do we have to do to get there? There isn't that long-term planning. It doesn't exist anywhere. I talked about the new concept of a new Parliament House which would easily become a destination, a thing of architectural wonderment, if we did it well. It's a bit like uh, Naomi's uh, contribution to architecture and design. Naomi Milgram, for whom we thank this piece of work, the one before it and two to follow. You need to have people who are prepared, not only to share their success, but to think ahead. And the real question is how we now identify the sort of city we live in. My great fear is, and I'm only going to live another 50 to 75 years, but my great fear is there's going to come a time shortly when I'll be driving into the city and I won't see a Federation or an Edwardian home. They'll all have been knocked down for redevelopment. And so much of the character of this city will have disappeared. And that, to me, would be a great disappointment. Because as we talk about Melbourne, we talk about the city, we've also got to think about the environs, the urban uh, areas immediately beyond here as our population grows. And I don't think, apart from saying we've got a plan in place in terms of planning and what we're allowed to do, I don't think there is a plan that designates, all right, uh, housing, accommodation infrastructure, gardens, etc., etc. What brings it all together? So the great challenge for the future is actually taking the best of what we've got. We can't change what happened yesterday, so there's no point saying we want to reclaim yesterday, let alone 50 or 100 years ago, but we can actually identify the things that matter today, we can secure them and we can invest in them for the long term. And then actually think about the ingredients that may be new that we haven't even thought of. So we are most fortunate as a city. You know, it's interesting, like many of you, I've travelled the world and there's lots of places I like to visit, but there's only place, one place I want to live, and that's here, because of our diversity, because of the structures that are here in terms of law. Laws affecting the way we live, laws affecting the way we drive, etc., etc. But the thing that most important to me. And it's something that I and my wife practice regularly, is our commitment to garden. The greatest strength to me of Melbourne increasingly is our reputation for things associated with culture, things associated with the arts, whether it be arts or sport, things associated with gardens. You've probably seen the figures that are coming in from overseas now uh, indicating that Australia, particularly while the dollar is so low, it's attracting a lot of students for education. It's now our third biggest export industry. It's terribly important to Victoria. It's one of the reasons why Victoria's economy is holding up when others that are focused on mining or others are dropping away. But people come here for the environment. They can't believe we have so much open space, so much to offer and so few people. Now the population will rise and population growth is important to encourage growth per se. But in allowing that to occur, we've got to make sure we don't put at risk the things that we value. And governments have a great role to play in that. So Gina, I think I'll leave it at that. Go into a panel discussion. As I say, this is where we choose to live. Therefore, we have a responsibility in being part of the conversation that actually leads those in control to put in place a structure, a plan that says, what is the best of what we have? What do we have to do to ensure that we not only preserve it, but grow it? But what might be the ingredients in the future that will help us all live a more stable, an economically secure, but importantly, a pleasant life? We've got to get the yins and yans right. There's no point working your backside off if you don't get time out to smell the roses. There's no point spending so much time smelling the roses that you lose an appreciation for them. And just wearing my hat as chairman of Beyond Blue, as I say to everyone, every night we should all go to bed mentally and physically tired so that we can sleep well and then get up and enjoy the next day. Every new day for all of us is the start of the rest of our life. But that applies to cities as well. It's not just the human soul. Leaving it at that, over to you. Thank yeah. you for that. Thanks
1: very much, Mr Kennett. Um, in the lead-up to this event, it uh, was brought up more than a number of times that you were the last Victorian Premier in living memory that had a vision for the city um, that was tangible. Um, and uh, now we have a city plan that we can't imagine. Um, You might dispute either of those things, of course, but what interested me about that, and I think even today you've already placed a number of pictures in my head, the parliament surrounded by gardens is frightening. I mean, how would you ever prize them out of of there? But um, this, this is often brought up Uh, with regard to your administration that you're a very visual, literate Premier. Um, And so my question is, during the 90s and even now when you're speaking, do you actually visualise the city as something with qualities? Do you have a mental picture in your head?
2: Uh, Yes, but can I just make one point? And Robert made uh, the same error as you've just made, Gina, if I may say it. No-one on their own in real terms achieves a thing. So whatever... My government achieved was a result of a combination of men and women working together, whether they be parliamentarians or bureaucrats or citizens. Whether you fail, it's a collective failure. So don't get the impression that I am bright. I'm not, right? I I work off a gut reaction. Uh, And please don't think that you can't get those people out of Parliament House because one day it'll fall down. And therefore, I would always like to move in advance of a major issue. And I think to be able to have a competition that designs a new parliament house surrounded by gardens could be the most wonderful thing. But yes, but all of my life, uh, I always look forward. People ask me, would you go back into politics? No, why would you? You never go back in life. You always go forward. Would you go back into running a football club? No, I've been there, done that. So I always look at things and say and ask myself whether we can do it better. And sometimes you can't, and that's fine. It's it's like these houses being demolished. It breaks my heart when I see them coming down, one after the other. Uh, So, yes, I always try and think ahead, and I try and envisage what the place will be like in X number of years, but I doubt very much whether, and I don't mean this politically, I don't think there's anyone that's tried to designate or design what Melbourne might look like in 2100, and we should be.
1: And and I think that's the point that we'd like to lead through to Peter about, because Peter brought up in our conversations some of the things that were done under your administration, for instance, making all the taxis yellow. And by making them all yellow, they actually became visible. And then, as a collective group of signs, the, the whole enterprise of taxis became available to criticism and reform of the the industry. So, Peter, did you want to talk um, a little bit to Mr Kennett about this aspect of the real in the city planning?
3: Um, Yes, I wanted to talk about the taxis um, and the choice of the colour.
2: Well, you know, I originally wanted it to be pink. Right, because no one else had pink ones. Well, that's right. But please understand, that wasn't a smart decision. We're getting more and more tourists If you go to New York, the taxis are fundamentally yellow. If you go to Greece, they're yellow. There is a uniformity about taxis in many places of the world and we were thinking about how do you give your tourists, how do you give your own residents the opportunity to recognise easily part of the public transport system so to have them one colour made sense. Well, brighter people than me have come along recently and they're allowing them all to go back to their own particular colour of choice. Well, I think that's madness, but I understand I'm old hat. Uh, but sometimes you've got to make decisions, and the great difficulty today is it doesn't seem to me that many people are making decisions. We talk a lot, but we don't decide anything. So whether you like the taxis or not, no, that's what you've like got. The <laughs> but um, what, I, what I was actually really interested in, um, from
3: looking back, and it was really amazing to hear you speak, um, was why, why, to speculate as to why, what configuration of, or how you put ideas in such a way that they were quite um, effective. Like, uh, the, the things that people say about your government, apart from that um, uh, you were visually literate, <laughs> um, was, was the, the comment on how much got done, or the efficacy of it. And my speculation, which, which, which is to do with the yellow taxis, is that it actually, by naming what the achievement was, it wasn't just that the taxis were going to be yellow, it was the, the drivers gonna, were going to wear uniforms. <laughs> Um, and that there was—I I think you even wanted them to have hats at one stage—that there was a sort of a, there was a consistency with the way ideas were put out, that, that then led to um, how they would be fulfilled. Like, um, so so instead of actually saying what we, instead of the question constantly being what we were going to do, that there was a certain um, agreement um, that was put out, and then there was a sort of a, a, a chase to, to try and find out how to actually fulfil that.
2: Well, you know, so long ago I can hardly remember, but it's really the application of common sense and good values. We spent 10 years in opposition, so we kept reviewing what we were doing to the point that when we were elected in 92, we were ready to act, and we'd found the best bureaucrats from around Australasia we brought in. I had a good parliamentary team, and, yes, there was a few change of priorities, but once you decide, I always think it's better to... If you're working off... Common sense and your gut reaction, and you put it into place seventy five percent of the time you 're going to be right, so I was never a great committee man, I was never a great consensus man, and nor was my government. If we thought something was the right way to go don 't sit around and argue and waste money, do it, and then let the outcome of that decision be reflected upon by the community and if they don 't like it, get rid of you i 'm happy to do that, but I think today If you had a look at the number of committees we've got looking at things, I tell you what, nothing will ever get done. So it's a matter, Peter, of believing in what you're trying to achieve and the basis of so much of what we did was actually about this thing of culture. I know that might sound funny to some of you, but I've always believed you can't have a modern city unless it has a strong cultural heart. And that culture includes not only the arts and gardens and things of that nature, but it's got to have a vibrating, beating, changing cultural heart. And that's what I think we're able to deliver, and a lot of that is still being reflected.
1: Uh, Yeah, well, I think that um, the the sort of parallel issue here is the fact that the planning code and the mechanisms which architects are uh, exposed to are often abstract in their language. They deal with words like, you know, density, plot ratio, site coverage. And so the idea of... Protecting uh, an Edwardian villa as a as a reality does not seem to enter or penetrate through that type of thinking. And I think that Michael wanted to have um, you know some comment on this on this on this issue not of 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 the abstraction of the planning code, but what that means for when you hold property, what your responsibilities and the options are which are available to you. Is that, is that right, Michael, that you wanted to perhaps take the idea of, of, of land ownership? Yeah. Yeah.
4: <clears throat> well, to um, it goes back to when I came back from the United States to, to here in 91, 92. It, I, it was a very special time because the state was a ruin and the smug sort of bubble of conservatism had been... Uh, ripped aside. So to me, I feel lucky to have uh, lived and worked through a very radical decade. And often when I listen to my colleagues in architecture claiming that architecture makes a city or that architecture itself is radical, uh, I know that to be false through the experience of that decade. What made the city radical for a moment was altering the property title possibilities and arrangements. So, you know, if we go back 200 years, this whole area was an established residential neighbourhood that had been established for a minimum of 35,000 years. And a property title or boundary ran through there somewhere and across that waterfall. And across that title, uh, diplomacy was involved. There was ownership. Now, that had been a static situation for that period of time, a conservative, conserving regime. Uh, in order to build this city, a radical thing had to occur, which was that a change of what had been negotiated as a change of use by Batman, uh, potentially misunderstood by all parties, was quickly uh, turned or, or revoked or altered by the authorities in Sydney, and... The surveyor came down here and the land was retitled. And that's what allowed the city to occur, which was a radical moment 200 years ago. And radical, I mean change. And then the city moved beyond those boundaries into the suburban hinterland and had a very stable form for 100 years through the cell of the quarter-acre block and kept going out. And somewhere in the 80s, we realised that we, did, as Mr Ken has pointed out, the infrastructure would not support a city of this square miles, this square metre So something had to be done. And what actually happened was that good design guideline, which gave every citizen the right, every citizen owner, the right to either be a conservator and conservative and preserve their block or be radical and develop it and subdivide it. And it was a moment of choice. It wasn't uh, enforced. Now, uh, for then, for the very first time, I think, in 99, planning became politicised. I think that was a tragedy. And then we have what I like to call the three Bs that come afterwards, Brax, Brumby, Bailey, who revoke by stages that radical moment and remove from the citizen landowner the choice to either be radical or conservative. It's now an NRZ situation for most of the city, and that means you must conserve by law. The only sort of comment I'd make is taking that into a great big circle and saying that that choice was never offered to the people who owned this land 200 years ago. They weren't allowed to be conservatives. They were told whether they liked it or not be radical and I think the city needs to go back to its foundation moment and decide its justification for being here is radical so ultimately we will lose those Federation houses and I think it's a tragedy but only a minor tragedy because the destiny of this country it's still a long way away we're still making it and We just have to go back to that radical moment and give it... That's the foundation of our city, you know, the reason for being here.
2: Just one point on that. Uh, I agree. Uh, The last decade has been driven by what I would call greed. How quickly can you build? How much money can you make so people are exploiting plots of land, get as many houses on them, many units, whatever it is? What I see with the Federation Edwardian Houses going is I think that's going to be a decisive moment in our history because so much of our past is disappearing. I'm not afraid of... And you've got to be radical. You've got to keep changing. If you stand still, then you get overtaken by others. And so I'm all for change. But I want to see good design. Now, I'm not saying I agree with all designs, but I want to see creative design. So, for instance, when we did Federation Square, we put it out to an open international competition. When I saw the last few choices, I gulped because there wasn't anything there that I could really relate to. But when they made their final decision and came up with what we have there now, I had to make a decision, as my government did on all these things, we either accept it in whole or we reject it. You can't have it both ways. And if people around the world thought this was a an appropriate design for now, then go with it. And we were lambasted by a lot of people for a long time over that design, including my dear friend Dame Elizabeth Murdoch, who at that stage wrote me one... who I've known all my life, who wrote me a very pithy letter telling me exactly what she thought of Federation Square and the design. But after it had opened up and it came into use, she wrote to me again. She said, look, I remember the letter I wrote. I'm sorry. I now think it's a wonderful space. So your and my opinion today, in one sense, doesn't matter as long as we're being challenged by what is being put around us. And when I see these tall, square blocks going up, I cringe because I know, on the other hand, we're losing something which is increasingly less obvious, being those examples of architecture in the past, which were just so wonderful.
1: Um, can I take sure, that sure. that point um, to Paul only oh, owing okay. to time um, yeah. that just just on the, Paul if you might uh, the the question of the interrelationship or the overlap or the duplication of state and local planning laws um, the idea of long-term vision where that that that's a sort of that's an intrinsic conflict would you like to speak to that in particular I know you've got that story about the tree.
5: well, I'll start with the story of the tree. I live in a Property which has a back and a front street, and about five years, four years ago, I got trees put in the back street, and they were starting to die this year, because we've had a very uh, hard summer, and I have been hand watering them, but I had a bad back, so I rang, I contacted my councillor over Christmas, at the slumber time, and she said, yeah, we should be able to organise that. The end result was I was told, no, we can't water them because our law says that we can only water trees for two years and then they should die because it's not cost-effective to water them any further. And it seems to me that it's... And then they want to replant exactly what has died. So I am now embroiled in a Kafkaesque moment (laughs) in my Christmas slumber. But I think it raises a much bigger question and what Jeff I think, is really spot on. He is saying that the tower blocks that have been built for people, the lack of greenery for people, seems to me to be about a sort of impoverishment of this city and its residents. And it seems to me that Melbourne is at a very critical moment where, if you have money, you might be allowed to survive in an Edwardian villa. If you don't, you might have an option of owning one of these apartments. And if you can't afford that, then you'll live in an apartment. And Manningham Council has just written to the minister about this that there are now apartments being built where there isn't a sufficient light. And it seems to me what Jeff is talking about is that this city has given people of every class the fundamental thing to greenery and space and that that is something that, as a democracy, it under what we are as Melburnians. And that is one of the challenges, along with infrastructure, as to how do we keep that sense of equality in the built space so that whether you live in a fashionable suburb or an unfashionable suburb, there are basic rights so that people can still touch the ground or touch the tree leaves. And it seems to me that we are at the stage through a very lack of rigorous, imaginative engagement about the form of this city will take as it densifies and changes as to whether we will have a better future.
2: You've only got to. Uh, I love Singapore. Uh, Some of you won't be surprised. I love the regimentation of Singapore, (laughs) right? No-one swearing, no-one putting chewing gum on the ground, no papers. Uh, But Singapore is, I know it's only an island, but we're almost getting into that state ourselves now where very few own homes. They can't afford to. The rest are living in these increasing high-rises. And I try and tell my friends, and I know it's their right, who talk about downsizing, I say be careful about downsizing, because you'll end up in a small area with no garden, with nothing to do. You'll start to... Your focus will narrow onto yourself, onto your knees, the puree food that you're eating. You're going to become boring. As we get more mature, as we get more... We should be upsizing to make sure when we're not actually at work... We're out there physically doing things so at night we can go to bed tired to keep ourselves occupied. So quite the reverse. I understand we need this accommodation, but we've got to get the balance right, which is why we've got to say, what's the picture of Victoria? What's the picture of Melbourne 2100? And what have we got to do to get there? And I think what we
5: need is a sort of, what's lacking in all these planning debates is the notion of the creative city. And, you know, like, I love going to Dandenong and looking at how that functions. And the state government built a new plaza and things. But it's such a wasted opportunity because when you look at how people use those spaces, they come from trader societies, the bazaar. There's no little space where you can begin your journey as being a businessman where your rents aren't huge and then accumulate capital. And there are women in that society. If they come from Africa, which a lot of those people do, they are the driving force of African economies. Yet the way that Dandenong is slowly being redesigned ignores how people from different parts of the world have existed, the way they accumulate capital and the way they function. They planted plains trees instead of bloody orange trees. You could have had an orange (laughs) blossom festival. You know, like if you go to Shiraz or parts of the Middle East, it's the orange blossom. You know, these are small things, but they bring the strengths of people together and create new conversations about trees, about space, and it starts to reimagine a city that I can only just start to see the glimmers of, because Melbourne is changing. Like Peter Corrigan has been reading Bolzark, because he says, Melbourne is in such a changing world, I should come back to a city in the 19th century that was Fundamentally, in a state of flux, to understand where I am now.
1: That's a beautiful. That's a beautiful point, Paul. Do, uh, we're really uh, moving close to the the pointy edge here, um, Mr. Kennett. Did you want to have any, or anyone want to have any concluding remarks? Or
2: no, 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 no. no. We leave it there with no, Peter and Corrigan. reading that last out. contribution. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think that's a lovely conclusion. Peter Corrigan reading Balzac. So, Mr. Kennett, Peter Brew, Michael Markham and Paul, Dr. Paul Fox, thanks
2: so much for your time. Thank you.